Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship. Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray as we look at things that might be kind of hard to talk about. Lord, I just pray that the things that are of you would be remembered, things that are of me, that are of my flesh, Lord, I pray that they would be forgotten. Lord, speak to us today. We're ready to hear from you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I have a really terrible thing I have to confess to you. Some people know this already, but I've always been a big fan of Tom Brady. I know that's borderline blasphemy, blasphemous, um, but before you burn me at the stake, remember this is church, show me a little grace. Before you pick up the stones to stone me, hear my story. So I came to age, so to speak, in being interested in football in the late, very late 90s. Um, I was alive for the Bill Super Bowl era, you know, Super Bowl years, but uh, I was really just too little. I didn't really, wasn't interested in football at that point. And by the time I got interested in the Bills and football, the Bills were kind of on the downswing. And I remember first getting interested in football. It was just kind of, I think it was like the early high school. And I remember the 2000 season, the New England Patriots. I was just, for whatever reason, I was just interested uh, in their story and how Tom Brady came as a sixth-round pick and won the Super Bowl in 2001. And it wasn't that I wasn't a Bills fan. I, I always liked the Bills. But this is how it would often go. Um, for, I would always be excited about the season and like, okay, this is our year. This is the year that we're going to make it to the playoffs. And then every year we would just get really, really disappointed. And, you know, it went on for 17 years or 17-year playoff drought. I remember in 2003, uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to the Bills' home opener. It was against the Patriots. And the Bills just whomped them. It was 31 to nothing. And I, I didn't care. I mean, I like Tom Brady, but I'm like, this is awesome. Like, maybe this is our year. This is the year that we're going to the Super Bowl. The Bills went on to go 6-10, and ten, not make the playoffs. And the Patriots actually won the, play, won the Super Bowl that year. And so... I became a Tom Brady fan. I would root for the Bills at the beginning, and then when they would fall off the wagon, then I would root for the Patriots as they went to the playoffs and won Super Bowls. And it got to a point, though, in 2018, 2019, then the Bills were starting to get good. And, you know, we had Josh Allen, and I love Josh Allen, love the Bills, and they're starting to get good. And then it's like the Patriots, there are a few times when the Patriots played the Bills. And then I'm like, wow, this is... I'm kind of conflicted here. Like, who's my loyalty to? I mean, I've always been a Bills fan. I always loved the Bills, but they've been so bad, it's like they're irrelevant. And I've been rooting for Tom Brady all this time, and I'm like, who do I want to win this game? I'd be, like, conflicted. Like, who's my loyalty to? 
in this game. Some of you are thinking there shouldn't be any question about that. But for me, there was like a loyalty thing. Like, who, who, who should I be loyal to here? And I was conflicted. And, and there's a lot of things in our life that maybe we're conflicted about. And one thing that, you know, kind of is, is a trigger point for people sometimes is like, what is my loyalty to my government and what is my loyalty to Christ? And are, are there times when these things conflict? Are there times when these things can go together, when my loyalty to the government and to Christ can go together? And this is something that Jesus, you know, addressed in this passage. And we're going to kind of look at that question of, like, how does our heavenly citizenship, the place where we belong, how does that affect the place where we reside, our earthly citizenship? In other words, how should we behave when it comes to our governmental authorities? To understand this passage that we're looking at today, we need to understand a little bit of background. Um, so for several decades prior to Jesus, um, there was the, the, the land of Israel was governed as what was called like a vassal state. So most of the time it was King Herod that was in charge of Israel, and so he had only the authority that Rome gave him. And so he served over Israel, and he was really good. He was a terrible person, but like he was really good at ingratiating himself with everybody. And so he would build, he, he rebuilt the temple, and he was half Jewish, and so he would portray himself as the king of the Jews. And, and so he would try to ingratiate himself with the Jews by, you know, you know, going forward with some of their projects. And then he would go into pagan cities and he would build these pagan temples and try to ingratiate himself with, with the pagans. And, and then he would, you know, flatter the Roman authorities and make them think he was doing a great job governing over Israel um, so that they wouldn't get involved. And so he, he's serving as this kind of vassal king. He doesn't have authority in and of himself. He's under the authority of the emperor, under the authority of Rome. This is King Herod the Great, and then King Herod the Great dies. After he died, uh, what happened was they set up what was called a tetrarchy. And uh, there were three, he had three sons, and he had uh, his sister, and, and the whole kingdom of Israel and that surrounding area was broken up between those four individuals. Now, the person who was the ruler over Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, where Jesus is in this passage as he's, he's headed to Jerusalem to die, the person that was in charge of Judea was Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus wasn't like his father. He was just terrible. Nobody liked him. It got so bad, after just two years, he was deposed by Rome, and Rome, the emperor, sent someone to directly govern it. So it would, was no longer this vassal state governed by King Herod. Now it was directly controlled by Rome. And being that it was directly controlled by Rome, there was a special tax that was imposed on people who were residents of an area that was controlled by Rome, if they weren't citizens. Citizens weren't subject to a tax, but people who were residents of an area that were controlled by Rome had to pay a special tax called the poll tax. This caused some problems. So they hadn't been paying this under King Herod. Then it, Judea becomes a Roman colony. Now they have to pay this poll tax. This guy named Judas the Galilean, who is very different from Judas who betrayed Jesus. Judas the Galilean, he doesn't like this tax, and, and so he leads this uprising of the Jews. It's like, hey, we're going to overthrow these Roman oppressors who are charging us these taxes. And uh, that rebellion was quickly squashed, but it gave rise to a group of people called the Zealots. 
Uh, you remember Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples? And so that gave rise to the Zealots, who were people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And one of the trigger points was taxes, because they had to pay this special tax, the poll tax, which was a significant amount. And so some Jews actually went so far as to say it's incompatible to pay the temple, the, the poll tax and to honor God. And their argument went something like this. So like if you're paying the poll tax, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that this ruler is legitimate. And if you're acknowledging that this ruler is legitimate, you're not acknowledging that God is legitimate, that he's the ultimate authority, that you're giving authority to a man rather than to God. And so some people, the zealots, would say you shouldn't pay taxes. It's not compatible to be a good follower of God and to pay taxes. And so these two groups of people come to Jesus, the disciples of the Pharisees. Why the Pharisees themselves didn't come, we don't know. Um, maybe they just, you know, we're afraid to ask these questions, who knows. So it's the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were people who supported the Tetrarchy, who supported Herod and his vassal state, and they wanted to see that state of Herod, you know, kind of control Judea once again. And so they come to him, it says in the text, they're coming to entangle him in his words. They want to ask him a low, they're going to ask him a loaded question. A loaded question is a question that doesn't have any seeming good answer. It's like a question like, have you stopped beating your spouse? How, how do you answer that? If you say yes, that implies, well, I used to be, and now I've stopped. If you say no, it's like, well, you're continuing to do it. So how do you answer that? It's one of those loaded questions where they're trying to entangle him in his words. And so they ask, what's your opinion? After flattering him and saying, oh, you're this great teacher, you don't follow the, you know, take note of appearances, you're going to say what you really believe, they ask him, so like, what do you think about this tax? And specifically, they're talking about this poll tax, tax imposed by the Romans. It's a loaded question because if he says, okay, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to pay the tax, it's not right to pay the tax, they're getting ready to go down to the Roman authorities and they're like, hey, Remember this guy, Judas the Galilean? Remember he didn't want to pay the taxes and he led this uprising against Rome? Now there's this Jesus, this Galilean, and he's teaching the same thing. And so if he says, you don't have to pay taxes, they're, getting ready, they're going to go down to the Romans and say, hey, this guy, is, he's about to, to, to start an uprising and he's pro Jesus is probably going to be taken into custody, maybe even put to death. So if, that's, if, that's if he says, yeah, you don't have to pay taxes. But if he says no, you, you, if he says you do have to pay taxes, then people are going to be like, well, you're a sellout. Like you're not acknowledging God's authority in your life. That you're acknowledging this, this Roman empire rather than the empire that, that God has established, the authority that he has established. And it seems like there's no good answer. But somehow Jesus gives a good answer. He says, bring me a coin. The coin that was most likely brought was the silver denarius. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? The likeness was the likeness of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar, the emperor at that time. And on the inscription it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, or son of a God. When you look at it that way, 
it's kind of a silly question that they're asking Jesus, right? They're asking him, hey, is it better for me to hold on to this blasphemous coin that says Caesar is the son of God or to give it to him? Like, would it be better for me to just acknowledge, uh, to, to just hold on to this and acknowledge God's authority? And Jesus is saying something that I believe is revolutionary in, in Jesus' day. The people of Israel up to this point were set up as a theocracy. That is, God was the one who ruled them. When it got to the time, when, the time of the kings, it was like God's king ruled over the people as kind of an agent of God. And now Jesus here is saying that there's a difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. There's a difference between the two things. They're not, you know, the same thing. And you can acknowledge one authority, or both authorities at the same time. The kingdom of man does something different than the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says the famous words, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. There's a government that's orchestrated by man, and in this case it's the Roman Empire, and at best it was meant to maintain, uphold the social order. And so there's that kingdom, but then there's also the kingdom of God that's eternal, that is in the hearts of men. And so when he says render, he's basically saying, hey, you see whose likeness, you see whose inscription is on this coin? Like, give it back to him. It's his. Like, he's the one who upholds this social order. He's the one who maintains this mint. It's his inscription. Like, if he asks for it back, give it to him. I mean, it's the kingdom of man. It's not the kingdom of God. And he says, in turn, give God what is his. And so I think what he's saying here is that there's, that, that you can be a good citizen of the country where you reside and also be a follower of Jesus. That the two things are not by nature opposed to one another. But also that there is a difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. That there is a difference between the church and the state. It's funny, the questions that people asked thousands of years ago are sometimes the questions that just kind of keep coming up over and over again. I mean, I remember, as I look in God's Word, it's like things that happen in God's Word, it's like the same stories that happen over and over again. It's just packaged differently. I think it's really applicable today. There's a lot of talk these days about uh, what's called Christian nationalism, and Christian nationalism is something that's interesting and that it's not universally agreed upon what it is. And sometimes people misuse it as kind of a slur. That like if someone believes the Bible, that's, oh, that person's a Christian nationalist. So sometimes it's used as a slur, but what, what does it mean to be a Christian nationalist? Paul Miller defines it pretty well, I think, when he puts it this way. He says, Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescription pro prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. So the idea is that America is a Christian nation. We need to return to our roots in order to become a Christian nation once again. Now, we think about that as believers. It's like, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, we want the gospel to advance. Like, what's wrong with, you know, promoting Christianity? What's wrong with kind of the church and the state kind of intertwining? Like, what's the problem with that? 
uh, I think there's a couple of problems. The first problem is I think it's hard to argue that America was ever really a truly Christian nation. I mean, you look back at our founding fathers, they were very religious men. They were very devout men. Some of them were believers. Some of them loved the Lord. But many of them were just, you know, kind of deists. They thought, like, God just started the world and then just let things go. Uh, Many of them were not devout followers of Christ. Thomas Jefferson, for example, he went through the Bible and he took a razor blade. He took out all the references to the supernatural in the Gospels. Took out all the miracles. And he thought, this is going to be a little bit more palatable for people. Like, we can give this out, and people can read this, and they can hear Jesus' teachings, and they wouldn't have to worry about the supernatural stuff. Benjamin Franklin was asked near the end of his life what he thought about God, and he reportedly said, um, basically, he wasn't sure if Jesus was God, and he didn't really actually even think it was a very important question to ask. So I I think it's hard to say that America is a Christian nation. I mean, historically, most people, I mean, the majority of people throughout its history have been uh, Christian, at least nominally. But to say it's a Christian nation, it was never set up to be a theocracy that's like, okay, Christianity is the state religion. It's kind of opposed to that. It's like there's freedom of religion. Whatever you know, religion you ascribe to, you can be free to, to worship. And so I, I don't think America was ever set up to be an explicitly Christian nation. But I think there's a bigger problem than that. I think when the church seeks political power, things get messed up really quickly. When the church seeks political power, the church seeks, the church loses its prophetic voice. The church loses its ability to call out sin. The church falls in love with power rather than in humility. The church falls, the church falls in love with a person rather than Christ. A few years ago, Franklin Graham, who's the son of Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham the evangelist who had crusades throughout the world, uh, led many uh, millions of people to Christ. His son Franklin Graham said the following words. He said, I could sense going across the country that God was doing something this year. And I believe God showed up. God was doing something. God showed up. What's he talking about here? He, he must be talking about a great revival as thousands of people across the country repented of their sins and made Jesus the great treasure of their lives. Certainly he must be talking about that. Or, or he, maybe he's talking about believers who acknowledge their sin that they've been walking apart from God and turn from the direction they're going and they're like, now I want to follow Jesus. I want to make him the treasure of my life. I want to serve him wherever that leads me. He must be talking about a revival like that. Or, or maybe he's talking about an outpouring of love for the poor as God invades the hearts of believers and believers care for those who are poor and downtrodden. Certainly, he must be talking about that move of God, that God was doing something, that God showed up. But he wasn't talking about any of those things. He's talking about the election of Donald Trump in 2016. I don't care what you think about Donald Trump. I don't care if you love him or hate him. I'm not going to get involved in politics. I don't really care. And there's people here that hate him and love him. So I don't really care. But there's a problem 
when the gospel is attached to political power. There's a problem when the movement of God is like, hey, we elected someone that we want to elect. There's a problem when we say God moving is electing someone to power. Again, I don't care what you think about the 2020 election. I don't you know, care what you think about you know, the events of January 6th and all, everything that happened that day. But what was scary about that day was as people were heading to that protest, they were carrying Bibles. Some of them were singing worship music. Some of them had shirts about Jesus. As protesters broke into the Capitol, they were on the, the top of the Capitol. I don't know what exactly that's called, where the speaker speaks. They were invoking the name of Jesus. That's a scary place to be. I don't care what you think about that day, what you think about the election, but it's a scary place when the gospel is associated with political power. Because Jesus didn't say, hey, disciples, go to Rome and seek to overthrow the emperor. Put somebody in charge who really knows what they're doing. Put somebody in charge who's going to support Christianity. He doesn't say those things. He says, go and make disciples. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. See, the problem is when the church gets too aligned with power, the church loses its voice. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the church, the church is not to be the servant of the state. It's supposed to be the conscience of the state. That the church, the people of God, we're supposed to call out the state. That we're that prophetic voice. And we see that when the church becomes the state, when the church is aligned with political power, the church often does horrible things. And often misses incredible blind spots. A couple examples. Several, century, several centuries later, there was a Christian emperor in Rome. And what did he do? Some good things, but also the Crusades. Carrying the banner of the cross, went and invaded foreign lands that they had no business evading. Sometimes it was because they believed differently. When the church becomes the state, things get messy really quickly. Or when Christian churches supported Hitler, many of them supported Hitler and what he was doing. I'd say God help us from becoming a Christian nation. Because when the church becomes an arm of the state, we give to the government our worship, our power, and our authority. That power and authority that only belongs to God. God help us from becoming a Christian nation. Now certainly I'm not arguing that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. Uh, we should be good citizens of the state that we're in, uh, of the country that we're in, that we should do our research and vote for candidates that we feel um, represent the teachings of God's word the best, that we should participate in the democratic process, that we should vote for good people, ideally godly people. But we also need to recognize that this is not our home. Our goal is not political power. Our goal is not to manipulate the levels of power so that we can get what we want. Our goal is to serve Jesus wherever that takes us. Our goal is to live lives as salt in the world that we live in. Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. He's the one that's on the throne. 
Our country, we are not a chosen nation. God's people are a chosen nation. Our country, the United States, is not a chosen nation. There's only one king, and it's King Jesus. And he deserves all of our, all of our loyalty, all of our worship. We can't give that to any man, any structure. We're to serve Christ and him alone. And sometimes as we're following Christ, as we're trying to be good citizens of the country that we live in and also of Christ, there's conflicts that come up. There's conflicts that come up. But here's the thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because if you're in a government where there's no conflicts with what you believe, it means you're probably missing something. You know, it, in, you look at totalitarian governments in other countries, there's not much dissent. There's not many people like calling out the state because if they call out the state, they're going to be put to death. So it's a good thing when there's tension sometimes, when the church is calling out the state, so to speak. And I talked about the events in Nazi Germany in 1930s. And many people went along with the Nazis. There were actually people who considered themselves to be patriotic priests, pastors, religious leaders, who thought it was their goal to advance the interests of the state, to keep the peace. And so as Jews are being taken away to concentration camps, they're singing hymns. And they're perfectly fine with it. Now Hitler, he had no interest in Christianity. He used Christianity. He used it as a vehicle to get what he wanted. But some people were, they just, some, many uh, churches just went along with it, but not all. There was a group of people came to be known as the Confessing Church in Germany. They spoke out against what was called, what they described as German Christianity, which was inspired by Nazism. They get to, got together in 1934. They authored a document called the Barman Declaration, and it argued that the church and the gospel is to serve no one and no ideology. Even if that ideology is good, even if that person is good, the gospel is not a tool to advance political power. They conclude this way, they say, I quote, We cannot put the word and the work of the Lord in the service of any arbitrarily chosen desires, purposes, and plans. We cannot put the word and the work of the Lord in the service of any arbitrarily chosen desires, purposes, and plans. But then we say, like, okay, like, let's look at who's in the government. It's like, maybe we look at the government with dismay. It's like, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. Or I don't agree with, you know, many of the things that they do. And sometimes it's like, gives us some anxiety, right? It's like, what is the world going to come to? Like, what's the future going to look like for us? And then sometimes it's like, okay, we need to try to grab that power. Like, we need to find this candidate that's going to support our interests, and then, like, we got to get, get in power again. And I think that sometimes we try to hold on to control because we forget who the real king is. No matter who the president is, no matter who the governor is, no matter who's in our Congress, Jesus is on the throne. Now, yeah, let's pray. Let's vote for people who ideally are good, godly people to be in those positions of power. Like, we want that. But Jesus is on the throne no matter who governs our land. He's on the throne. And our God is incredible. Sometimes we act as if, like, okay, we know in our heads Jesus is on the throne, but we act as if other people and other things are. 
But we serve an incredible God, and he's so incredible that he uses not just good people, but he uses evil people to accomplish his purposes. I mean, that, that's something we can't even wrap our minds around. I mean, it's hard for us to even fathom, but he can use evil and turn it into good. And so God can use evil governments, and he can use good governments for his purposes. Remember the question that Jesus was asked, should you pay taxes? 70 AD, God would bring judgment upon the people of Israel. The, the city of Jerusalem would be ransacked. The temple would be destroyed. And this was something that was foretold for a very long time as Israel, uh, especially Israel's leaders, had you know, missed Jesus and they had you know, focused on the externals of the law. And so this was foretold. And so in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and this was to squash a rebellion of the Jews, and it was precipitated by a number of reasons, but one of them was taxes. They didn't want to pay taxes. While they may have had some legitimate reasons to protest, they had missed something fundamental. The king who had lived among them was present. And they were trying to build their own kingdom. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19. And when he drew near, speaking of Jerusalem, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden, hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to, down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice what happens here. Jesus comes to the earth. He calls the people to repent. Change from the way that you're thinking about God. And find your life in me. He gives this great commission. Great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go make disciples of all nations. And what do many people do? They say, we want to build our own kingdom. These Romans, let's do away with them. Let's have this, not Christian nationalism, but Jewish nationalism, where it's like, we're the ones that are going to be in control. We're going to control the levels of power. Let's make this our quest. And the result is disastrous. They'd pin their hope on a kingdom that would end. Several years ago, the noted British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge was a guest at a breakfast in Washington, D.C. He, he got up and gave some remarks. And uh, the, the whole tenor of what he was talking about, he was very pessimistic about the world. And then afterwards, somebody came up to him who was a believer and said, Dr. Muggeridge, you've been very pessimistic. Don't you have any reason for optimism? Muggeridge replied, My friend, I could not be more optimistic than I am because my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. He paused for a minute, allowed the remark to settle, and then he said this. He said, Just think if the, uh, if the apostolic church had pinned its hope on the Roman Empire. An empire that came empire that went. 
How tragic is it for us if we put our hope on a government? Government that's one day going to end. So God can use a government for judgment, but he also can use an evil government for redemption. The greatest act of redemption in human history was started with something that might surprise you. It was started by taxes. If you don't believe me, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Why was, why was the world to be registered? To be taxed. Caesar wasn't a great person, wasn't advancing the Jewish cause, wasn't you know, in line with Christ. But taxes are what led to the birth of Jesus. Taxes that God brought Mary and Joseph to the place where they needed to be for Jesus to be born. He, he set them on the path that otherwise, if it wasn't for that, those taxes, they probably wouldn't have gone the way that they were going to go. And if they didn't go there, who knows? Maybe King Herod would have found them and killed them. So we see that God uses an evil government through taxes to bring redemption to the world. So God can use governments, both good and evil, both to judge his people and also to redeem his people. And so as believers in Jesus, I think when we truly believe that Jesus is the king of the universe, we don't have to worry so much about who the king of the land is. When Jesus is who, if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the king of the universe, that he's the one who, he says, it says in Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If we believe that God is truly in control, that he truly is sovereign, we don't have to freak out when the person in charge is not the person we hoped would. We don't have to freak out because we know whoever's on that throne, whoever's the leaders of our country, good or bad, Jesus is still on the throne. No matter what happens, he's going to do everything for his glory, for our good. No one can stop him. No government, no authority, no ruler, no power. There's nothing that can stop our God. There's nothing that can thwart our purposes, his purposes. So we can trust in him. We don't have to worry. We don't have to try to establish our own kingdom. Closing, just a few passages that speak of this. Psalm 33, 10 to 11 says this. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Psalm 47, verse 8 says, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. Ladies and gentlemen, we can take heart because Jesus is on the throne today. No matter what happens in our world, he's on the throne, and everything that happens is going to go according to his plan and his purpose. We can trust him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible sovereignty. We thank you that we don't have to worry about our days because we know that you have each and every one of us in the palm of your hand. We know that throughout history you've used good godly leaders, but you've also used evil leaders as well. Lord, I just 
thinking of the way that you used Pharaoh to lead your people to the promised land. Lord, I just think of all these examples of times where you showed yourself faithful even in the midst of what seemed like darkness. Lord, help us to rest in you. Help us not to be driven to worry and anxiety. Help us not to, in our fear, be driven to to try to grab hold of any power and control that we can. But Lord, help us to not only just be good citizens, but also to be good followers of you. Help us to trust you. Help us to know no matter what happens, you're on the throne. And there's no one and nothing that can change that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.